Welcome to Your True North, a program that explores how values act as a compass directing our lives and work. Inspiring guests tell how key events and influential figures shaped their values and how they've used those values to create a life rich in meaning, accomplishments, and personal satisfaction. Your True North is hosted by Cindy Camp. Are you seeking your true north? Then welcome. Today on Your True North, I'm talking with Bill McKibben. He's an author, environmentalist, and activist. In 1988, he wrote The End of Nature, the first book for a common audience about global warming. He's a co-founder and senior advisor at 350.org, an international climate campaign that works in 188 countries around the world. Welcome to Your True North, Bill McKibben. I'm so honored that you could join me today. Well, the honor is mine. What a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, well, let's start out. I'm going to just ask you a question right off the bat that relates to the work that you do. For nearly 30 years, you've been writing about the environment and more recently working as an activist. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said that the arc of the moral universe is long and bends toward justice, but you've reframed his quote and said that instead this arc is short and bends toward heat as our climate continues to warm. How did you initially come to the realization that you cared so deeply about the planet and its climate? Well, that's a good question. You know, I was not really an environmentalist uh, uh, as a young man. Uh, I, my first job out of college was writing the talk of the town column for the New Yorker magazine. So I was very focused on urban issues and actually spent a lot of time dealing with questions around homelessness. I started a homeless shelter in the basement of my church and uh, lived for a while as a homeless person on the street to write about it and so on. Um, and those were, that's all extraordinarily important work is, you know, uh, we, we've gone on to understand inequality in, and the growing poverty are a rampant source of stress and unhappiness in our society and one that we could and should remedy. But when I was in my mid-twenties, I guess, I began reading some of the early science about climate change. And I began reading also uh, writers like Wendell Berry and Ed Abbey and began opening my eyes, I think, to the larger world, uh, the world just that goes beyond just the kind of relations between one human and another, and which is what we've normally described politics as. And so at some point, uh, I, I started writing about it. I think at the beginning, thinking this is an incredibly important and interesting story. And so I did write the first sort of book about what we then called the greenhouse effect. But uh, halfway through the book, it was very clear to me that I was <laughs> at some level uh, uh, taking sides. Like, I did not want the earth to uh, dry up and blow away. And so um, I, I continue to be a writer, but I'm not a sort of newspaper beat writer anymore um, um, because I've, <laughs> I'm not objective in that sense. I guess I'm objective in the sense of continuing to look hard for the facts, but I know what I want to have happen and what I want to have happen is for people to come together to protect this planet that we've been given. 
Yeah, and I know that your work as an activist has picked up speed over the last 10 years or so, and you've stepped across from being the, the sort of observer and writer into being someone who's holding a sign and, and even getting arrested. Um, Probably at a certain point, I think I began to understand that what I had thought in my mind was an, was an argument uh, uh, over data and uh, so on. Um, wasn't really an argument. We'd won the argument. It was very clear what was going on with climate change. Uh, but this was actually a fight, and fights, as always, were about money and power. And the other side of this fight was the fossil fuel industry. And we couldn't outspend them, but perhaps we could begin to build the kind of movements that could challenge them. And that's what's been going on these last probably 15 years now. Well, as you know, Your True North is a program about how highly principled people put ethics at the center of their career and life decisions. Would you talk about an experience from childhood or your young adult years that really helped shape your core values? I'm not so sure that I think of myself as a highly principled person or anything. It seems to me that I'm uh, pretty normal. But, you know, as a child, I must say, I had the good luck of having uh, good parents who were... uh, committed to a uh, fair and just world, and and I grew up in good churches that thought the same way. Uh, for me, a truly formative experience as a young man was reading and rereading and rereading and rereading C.S. Lewis and the, the Narnia books. They were the first books that really uh, started to shape me, I think, and uh, I'm glad for it all the time because I think that, um, that those were uh, those were noble characters, uh, and uh, I'm not a noble guy, but I've been glad to have that in the back of my head since I was a boy. And with those books specifically, I guess you're talking about being noble. Are there any sort of specific? parts of the story that struck you or that applied to your life growing up? Not exactly. You know, I was sort of growing up in the farthest thing from magical conditions. Uh, (laughs) It's a good product of American suburbia at its absolute height in the 1970s, you know. Um, But they certainly lived in my uh, imagination. Um, I think that one of the things they did was kind of point me in, make me interested in the wonderful history of resistance and uh, activism in this country and around the world. So my great hero was always Dr. King, and I read and studied a great deal about the civil rights movement. Uh, And from that grew to have many other heroes, uh, Gandhi, uh, and, and maybe most powerfully the man that now largely forgotten by history, but the people called the, the frontier Gandhi, the Patan leader, Badshah Khan, uh, Gaffar Abdul Khan, yes. uh, uh, who was maybe the greatest nonviolent leader in, in history, uh, a great friend of Gandhi's, but operating in the even more difficult and remote territory on the border of Pakistan and Afghanistan that we've come to think of as an extremely violent and warlike place, but was actually, in the middle of the last century, the center of the greatest scenes of nonviolence that the world's ever witnessed. 
Yeah, I think Bachakan had the first nonviolent army. And Through the Kudai Kitmatgar. Yes. Who are a remarkable story. For people who are interested, there's a very good book by a man named Eknat Eshwaran, uh, E-A-S-W-A-R-A-N, called A Man to Match His Mountains. And one of the things that makes it so interesting, of course, is that we've come to accept the idea, flawed and incorrect idea, that Islam is a violent uh, religion, uh, that the greatest practitioner of nonviolence was also an extremely devout Muslim, often comes as a surprise to Westerners. Yeah. You know, you're mentioning uh, Bacha Khan, and oh, some time ago I interviewed Samina Katak, his great niece. And yeah, we actually had a panel discussion um, at the school I was teaching at in Chicago with her father, who had been in jail as a teenager for his acts of civil resistance. And we were joined by Rajmohan Gandhi, Gandhi's oldest grandson. So it was a discussion about civil resistance, but also religious tolerance. And as you're saying, these men, one a Hindu, one a Muslim, but they forged a tremendous relationship and were so effective in their efforts to get the British out of the Indian subcontinent. So, wow, what a great, great example for you to cite. In the States now, or were they just here for this conference? Or are they... They, yeah, um, Rajmohan Gandhi actually works at the University of Illinois. He's been teaching right, there. I know him, but the Khan family. Yeah, um, Samina lives in Chicago, and her father was visiting, but has since passed away. Fascinating. Yeah, yeah. So, um, well, I'm so glad that you brought them up. That's a family that I know and have so much admiration for. Um, maybe you can say a little bit more about your own religious identity and how, especially the way that you were raised, influenced your sense of your values. Sure. I'm a product of the uh, kind of religious identity that people think has declined a great deal. Uh, uh, sort of most uh, straightforward, mainline Protestant tradition. I was baptized Presbyterian, because that's what there was where we where I was born. I grew up a Congregationalist UCC member, because that's what there was where we lived when I was uh, at that age. And then uh, as an adult, because I was living out in the woods in uh, upstate New York in Adirondacks, uh, the, the local flavor of that was uh, the Methodist Church. So I'm a Methodist. Um, but, you know, there's no longer an enormous difference between, I think, for most people, between congregationalists and Methodists and Presbyterians and things. They're all flavors of um, a certain kind of religious um, uh, witness that I tremendously value um, and that I think whose uh, decline has, has, has been a sad thing for our country. And um, you know, oddly, sometimes people say, "Oh, they you know, declined because they become they became too secular or whatever it is." I, I, my guess is sort of the opposite that they asked an awful lot of people um, more than some people were willing to give, uh, including giving up some of the old hatreds and prejudices endemic to America and, uh, and some of those attitudes. So I, I was really lucky to have grown up in those churches. Yeah, and when you mention the witness, is there something in particular that you sort of cite as now a, a feature of the work that you do, some value that you draw from your childhood in that Protestant church background? Oh, I mean, I continue to, these are many of the people that I continue to work hard with. I mean, I won't 
soon forget, you know, spending Sunday morning in jail with Jim Antall, the conference minister of the Massachusetts UCC, three cells down, and the two of us, you know, leading the other 60 people who were there, who were from a variety of traditions, but all of whom were eager to be cheered up, you know, in a good hymn sing on uh, Sunday morning. Um, uh, that tradition felt very alive. Well, let's pause just for a moment for station identification. You're listening to Your True North on WPRR, Public Reality Radio, broadcasting from Western Michigan. Today I'm talking with Bill McKibben, author and co-founder of 350.org. Bill, you've mentioned some of the people that you find particularly inspiring. Um, I'm just wondering about your thoughts for younger people who are charting their own careers, um, figuring out their educational path and what it is they want to do with their lives. I think for many young people, having a role model or a hero to emulate is very helpful. Uh, but do you have any other advice for young people as they're looking ahead? Many of my, many of my role models and heroes are, are young people. Um, I do an enormous amount of work with young people. They're most of my colleagues. That's who I founded, 350.org, with seven college undergraduates. And, and now we can look around the country and see great leaders like the young people from the Sunrise Movement who are working with the youngest congresswoman in history, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, to come up with this Green New Deal. Or I look across the ocean, too, at uh, Scandinavia, at my new friend, uh, a woman named Greta Thunberg, uh, 15 years old, who's been on strike much of this year from school, sitting in on the Swedish parliament steps to demand climate action. Uh, uh, she's galvanized attention across much of northern and central Europe, and it's been remarkable to be reminded that uh, 15-year-olds can be crucial leaders, and 20-year-olds and 25-year-olds. Uh, truthfully, I, I think that's where, if, we're, if we have any hope in the climate battle, that's probably where it is, because these are people who are less uh, have less to defend. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, then those of us who are older, and it's easier for them to uh, see clearly, and they do see clearly, and I'm so grateful to them for it. Yeah, they have more at stake, too, when we look at, you know, where the planet is at. Um, I, Yeah, I also do some teaching, and I often find that uh, my students can have so much um, impact on my thinking. And this summer, I interviewed a high school student here in Western Michigan who has been working on gun safety issues, and I found his um, his sense of his values to be really well formed already at 18 years old. I'm going to ask you about your own, I guess, honest assessment of yourself. I know none of us are perfect, and sometimes we have to struggle with our values. Are there anything about yourself or your decisions that you've regretted in life, or things that you're still trying to change about yourself? Oh, well, I mean, one's always a work in progress. And there's many things in my life that I regret. The most obvious level of my life as an activist has been hard on my family. And, you know, I, I wish I'd been able to figure out other ways to to do some of the things. And that's been not fair. Um, I wish that I'd figured out much sooner that the sort of scales had fallen from my eyes about the idea that we were in a fight and needed to organize because we should have gotten going sooner. So there's no list of things to regret. 
You know, I heard you speak last year here in Western Michigan, and you said something that really struck me. Um, and you have a religious background, as do I, um, in the Protestant tradition. But I know you called out that Protestant group and said, you know, you are the tribe that really elected someone now in the White House who has rolled back so many of our protections for the environment, that has denied climate change. And I think you were really holding them accountable. And I think for so many of us who have some kind of religious identity, there's also a struggle there. Because while we look at some aspects of it as being very positive, I think there's also things about it that can be problematic. I don't know if you want to say any more about that, but I was really struck by your comment. Problems of all kinds, you know, as time has gone on. Um, and I think people should be open to them and, and able to take them in. And, and, I mean, that's, you know, sort of the point, in a way, of um, religion and, uh, you know, figuring out how to do it better and, and get closer to what we're called to do. We have, we have a pretty high standard to meet, you know. Um, <laughs> it's The Gospels are a... Um, a fairly impossible standard for mere mortals to meet, but that doesn't mean we don't uh, try. And yes, I mean, I think it's very clear that large parts of American Christendom have gone seriously astray. And I I don't think you need to be uh, an enormously talented theologian to figure that out. I'm not. Um, You know, it's a pretty good sign if you end up uh, uh, backing uh, a bellicose liar like Donald Trump that you've lost the plot along the way someplace. And so maybe a very good moment to kind of re-examine where we, where we are and where we've come. Yeah, I, um, I know today as I was just taking a quick look at the list of books that you've written, I think I counted 16 with a 17th book coming out. Do you want to say a little bit about what you're working on right now? I have a new and very depressing book coming out in the spring. Uh, It's called uh, Falter, as the human game began to play itself out. Uh, It's written to mark the 30th anniversary of the end of nature. That first book from my, written in my mid-late 20s. And it just takes stock of what we have and haven't done over those three decades and what's happened to the world. Uh, uh, Much of it very, very trying and bad. Um, you know, climate change was an abstract threat. Now it's a painful, uh, overwhelming reality uh, in every corner of the planet. That said, the book is written with a sense of engagement and not despair. We're no longer in a position to stop climate change. But we remain, we hope, in a position to at least slow it down and limit the damage. And that's the biggest task, probably, that humans have ever been called to. Yeah, well, it is a huge undertaking. And I think you're right to not give in to despair is probably one of the biggest things that any of us has to to fight as we understand more and more about how the world is changing around us. Um, what specifically would you advise for young people with regard to their lifestyle, and how to live with this reality of climate change. I think I'd advise people to get outdoors as much as they can, whether it's a city park or the balcony in their apartment or the roof of their building, or if they're lucky like me and can live out in the woods, you know, out in the woods or on the shore or wherever it is, 
I find that um, a little time like that every day is the best way to keep uh, my uh, body and soul together. Yeah, and you have an interesting project. Um, your Oil and Honey book talked about your work with a neighbor who is raising bees, and that seems like a wonderful way to be outside. Do you want to say something about that? Yeah, that book described my neighbor, Kirk Webster, who's one of the great beekeepers in the world, one of the people who figured out how to do this kind of chemical-free beekeeping that can keep up with the wave of plagues coming at bees in the modern world. Um, And it is extraordinarily calming in a way to watch the steady operation of the hive. Uh, It's millions of members out there collecting busily and uh, uh, collecting and bringing back and making sweet the world. And when we understand how many of our crops rely on the bee population, it is so very important to do what we can to keep them healthy. Boy, you said it. That's absolutely right. Yeah. I'm a gardener, so I know um, I'm so concerned about the neonicotinoids that they think are at least part of the reason that the bees are struggling. Um, But I, I love that story about how you decided to work so closely with him. I find myself thinking a lot about how money gets invested, and we all need to provide for our own retirements. But I love the way that you were creative and did something very different um, by helping your neighbor, but also then purchasing property that would be a kind of a legacy for your daughter. That's true. Um, and and it's been great fun to watch, uh, well, just to get to watch Kirk make such good use of that land, a better land, better use than I could ever have made of it. And, um, and uh, it's... Um, it's a wonderful thing to have some. And one of the things he's done is teach a number of young people how to do this kind of beekeeping. And to watch that knowledge get passed on is really important, you know, because you live in the Midwest. And, uh, our agricultural laborers, our farmers are getting older um, with each passing year, and too little of that knowledge gets passed on. And I, I think it's awfully crucial. Yeah. Has your daughter developed an interest in farming or gardening? My daughter is doing wonderful work in the city uh, where she produces, uh, like you, uh, podcasts. Uh, She works for, uh, she runs the audio documentary portion of Frontline, the PBS video documentary series. Uh, She does all their audio documentary podcasts, the Frontline Dispatch. been winning all kinds of awards and things and we're extraordinarily proud of her oh that's great that sounds like really exciting work and important work um bill i'm going to ask you if you think ahead into the future what sort of footprint do you hope you'll have left on the world oh i mean you know uh, i grew up in lexington massachusetts uh, uh where the first battle of the American Revolution was fought. And um, in some very, very, very minor way, I suppose I've gotten to play a little, little bit of a kind of Paul Revere role um, um, in warning people about what's afoot. And um, that's not the most crucial role in the world. The most crucial roles are figuring out how to solve those problems. But if you don't know they're happening, 
then it's hard to work on the solutions. So um, I'm glad to have gotten to do a little bit of that. Yeah, well, with your contribution, all of your writing and your activism, are you still teaching as well at Middlebury College? I teach some at Middlebury College, which is a remarkable place. And, uh, uh, it's what a privilege to get to see smart young people arrive every fall, a whole new batch of them. Uh, nothing gives one hope that would. Yeah, well, I'm so grateful to you for sharing all of your experiences and your thoughts about living a life um, centered around a set of values. I'll give you a chance just to say anything else you might want to say before we wrap up. I'll just say thank you very much for your good work and for this opportunity. And I hope that you have an excellent 2019. Well, thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure to talk with you today, Bill McKibben from 350.org. I also want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning into Your True North. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Your True North Podcasts. Twitter is at YTN Podcasts. Our producer is Sean O'Melia, and I'm your host, Cindy Camp. Please join us again for another conversation about values as a compass for life's journey.